Well, we've been talking about the Revelation series now for some time, and there's been some anticipation for that, Um, but I just want to say we've got time. We don't need to hurry. We don't need to run through it, and I'm not starting with Revelation 1 today. I'm starting with an intro today. The more you start working on it, you realize, wow, uh, there's a lot that goes into a study of the book of Revelation. It's one of the hardest books of the Bible to understand, interpret, and there's been so many things said about that book that it makes it difficult then to come and and work on that together. So this morning is an intro to the series. It's about how to interpret the Bible properly. And uh, if you're a small group that was expecting to start Revelation 1 today, I have a supplement, we'll call it. On that table, uh, there's a group question and answer. I think there's 11 or 12 discussion questions for today's message. And then the material for the whole Revelation series is available today. If you're in a small group going through Revelation, there's a binder. There's great stuff in there. Or if you want to buy one of those for your own study at home, that would be great as well. But my encouragement as a pastor is start reading the book of Revelation. Read it. Just keep reading it. If you've got Bible on audio, listen to it. Uh, when you drive or go to sleep, uh, not really good sleeping material sometimes, but, but listen to it over and over again. That'll help as we go through and, and study it. So that's where we're at. I put out my weekly newsletter. I gave you kind of the date so you knew it's going to take us through July. We'll be through July going through the book of Revelation. A couple of weeks off uh, for different things, but uh, that's the plan at this point. So do you see the picture on the side screens? They'll be there in just a second. I was out shopping yesterday. Pam Ochoa can vouch for it. We were both there together, right? We were both there at the same time. As I was leaving Menards, I saw this, and I stopped, and I just had to take a picture, thinking about a Revelation series. Do you see that big crack in the middle? Where's my little pointer at? Let me see if I can do this without the world blowing up. No. No, I cannot. Maybe. Hey, you see this crack? How awful is it to be the improvement store? (laughs) And your sign has a huge crack in it. As I drove by that sign, I thought, oh, isn't that the illustration for the church and the book of Revelation? If we don't do the proper work of a good foundation of understanding Revelation, all sorts of things can happen. I imagine Menards is going to fix this pretty soon because you can't claim to be the place to help when you can't get it right in your sign, right? And you know that's true. Uh, The the best body shop in town, the guy who owns the best body shop drives a rusted out junky car. Why is that? Every pastor's kid tends to be rebellious, right? I mean, it's just the way it is. Uh, and, And the church... The church has to be able to interpret the Bible correctly. And we've got to do our best on that. And I just want to say this this message isn't meant to be legalistic. I'm not saying uh, that you, as people sitting in the pew, have to be uh, theologians. Although we all, when we approach the book of God, are theologians in a sense. I don't want you to feel like I'm, I'm putting pressure on you in any way. But I want to let you know where we're coming from as a church. And, and how when we stand before you on this stage and we say, thus saith the Lord, that we put some work and effort into that and we're going to do the best we can. And if you disagree with us on some kind of an application or an interpretation, there is room for that. I do not believe, listen to me very carefully, 
I do not believe that God sent one person who got the Bible 100% correct, and he lives in Ortonville, Michigan. I do not believe by any means that I am the only guy who's ever opened the Bible up from Genesis to Revelation and has not made any mistake. I don't believe that for a second. But I also want to say, so you don't think it's arrogant, but of course what I present to you, I think it's true. I, I wouldn't tell you if I didn't think it was true. My wife tells me all the time, you think you're always right. Well, of course I do. Why would I run around thinking I'm wrong all the time? I, I think I'm correct. But I've lived long enough to know that I could be wrong. And, and our talk in Revelation is not meant to be you signing the dotted line, agreeing with every bit of theology. Uh, as we get into Revelation, it's, it's going to be very apparent. I'm, I'm at least pre-wrath. I believe that I believe that Jesus is coming back and we're not going to be here to experience wrath. I don't see how that would be true when the Bible says as believers we no condemnation will take. Why would we go through the wrath period? Whether that means pre-tribulation, which I am, or mid-tribulation, which is okay if you believe that. I just want to let you know I hold views, but I'm not going to die for those. Philip, if you pulled a gun out and said, pre-tribulation, you'd better be mid-trib. Well, then we're going to go to lunch and I'm going to be mid-trib. If you're holding a gun to my head, okay. I'm not willing to die for positions, but I have taken a stand on what I do believe. And, and if you believe differently, we're still friends. I hope so. I can still be friends with you. I, 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 I have a wife and children. I get along with people who don't agree with me. Uh, and, and it's a necessity. And so I hope you can get along with me uh, if you disagree. But let's set the foundation today. Biblical interpretation. The big idea is we must interpret Scripture properly. 2 Timothy 2.15, a great Awana verse, right? Uh, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. Um, I so want to quote that in the King James Version. That's so ingrained in me from Awana from years and years ago. But this tells us that we've got to rightly divide the word of truth. We've got to, as a good workman, we've got to do our best to put some work and effort into it. And so as you open up the Bible, a lot of times people just read it and they just make thoughts about it. And I'm thinking, whoa, wait a second. There's some definite principles. Notice I avoid calling them rules. But there are definite principles about how to interpret God's word. Uh, the, the, the whole thing, the whole branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation, especially the Bible, is called hermeneutics. If you leave today with anything, you've got to leave with that big word so you can sound smart. Hermeneutics. And those of us going to seminary and, and got our master's degree in these things, we love using those big terms like hermeneutics, homiletics. But hermeneutics is the field of how to read the Bible and interpret it correctly. So I'm going to give you principles. There's notes in the back, probably on your phones. I'd encourage you to have those notes. And then the supplement is also there for small groups. Number one, interpretation must be based on the author's intention of meaning and not the reader. This rule is so important. And it's number one because number one needs to be number one. You need to know that the Bible had a definite meaning. And the author was writing what he meant when he wrote it. And it's not up, up to us today to give it meaning. You've probably heard the quote before, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Well, the problem with that is the middle one doesn't even matter. God, settled, God said it, that settles it. You don't need to believe it. It's still truth. And so 
when we talk about the Bible and interpreting the Bible, we have to try to determine what was the author's original intent. What was he trying to say? Sometimes that's very difficult. Communication is an art. I, I tell couples that are meeting with me before they get married, we spend a lot of time on communication because it's my favorite branch of, of field of study. Communication is so difficult. If I had a thought in my mind, and let's say that thought is square plus, a little box with a plus sign. That's what I'm envisioning in my mind. And I wanted to communicate it to you. My mind has to code that message and send it out my mouth. But that's not communication. Then it needs to hit your ears. You need to hear it and you need to decode it and get what I said. Most often, for couples at least, if I'm thinking square plus, by the time you hear it, you hear circle minus. How does that happen? Well, it's because by the time I code something and speak it, it travels through noise, chaos, distraction, past hurts. So by the time somebody hears it, interprets it, has a total different meaning. We, as Bible scholars, people who read the Bible, we want to get to the author's original intent. You, as husbands and wives, try to listen for the author's original intent, your spouse, try to, try to hear what they're actually saying, not interpret what they're saying to make it something different. And I will say, to me, this is the most dangerous one. That's why it's number one. So many people think today the meaning is in me, the reader. And, and so, therefore, they determine what, in their mind, it says, and that becomes truth. That's not absolute truth. Absolute truth is God's word as it was presented, not as you interpret it. So there are some limitations to us. We all bring baggage to interpretation. And that's not a bad thing. It's just understand we bring baggage to our work of reading the Bible. I am a white, middle-aged, American individual. That's my context. When I open up God's Word and try to understand it, it usually comes from a white, middle-aged man's, American's viewpoint. That's baggage. I just need to know that. You better know your baggage as you try to read God's word and interpret it. So number one, what is, what it, how do I get to this author's intent of meaning? Number one, it, it's, you got to know the author's context. Who wrote it? What were they trying to stay, say? You better know the historical background. When the time that it was written, what does it mean? When people say, well, this means that this is uh, Abrams F-150 tank. Well, no, it doesn't mean that because the author didn't even know about an Abrams 51 tank. Don't put our history and our culture onto a book that was written in the Middle East many years ago. So we've got to know historical. We've got to know grammatical. The Bible is literature. You should write that down in your notes. The Bible is Literature it needs to be studied as literature. So as we read it, we got to look at the grammatical context. The cultural context is so huge. Again, we're, we're Americans. We're McDonald's and Arby's and fast food and mega box stores. That's who we are. And when we read this book, we need to understand it comes from a culture that's totally different than ours. We also need to understand the literary forms. I'm going to go through all the literary forms in Scripture today just so you have an idea. And we'll end with, finally, Revelation when we go through those. So number one, the original intent of the author. Number two, interpretation must be done in the context 
of the passage? What's the context? What's around it? I, I use as an illustration Revelation 3.20 today. This one is often used. I will stand and admit me, Pastor Don Jackson, have done the same thing many, many times. Most pastors have. You might have even done this. We read this one verse and we make an interpretation that isn't accurate. Revelation 3.20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens that door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. How many of you have ever used that verse about evangelism, reaching the lost? I have. I've done that many times. When you look at the context of this passage, however, this is Jesus speaking, and he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking in the context of believers who have sinned. And he's wonderfully saying to you, believer, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open that door, I'll come in and eat with that person. We can have a relationship. This verse is not about outreach. Does that mean you're a terrible, awful, heathen person? No, no. Is Jesus still at the heart door of people who are lost? Yes. Yes, he is. And so by using this verse in the right context and saying, well, it doesn't actually mean outreach, but that is still true. I can still read this verse. The right way to do it was to say, I want to read this verse and show you what in the context, if you as a believer are living in sin, Jesus is patient and willing. He wants to come in and have fellowship with you. But we also know it's true that if you're lost, he knocks at your heart door too. We know that. He's seeking to save people that are lost. Do you understand what I mean about interpretation? It is wrong if we say this was written for lost people. It wasn't. The context very clearly is the church saved people. Hope you're with me so far. Some of you are like, too hard. No, it's not. It's not too hard. What about this saying? It was a ball. It was a ball. Context is everything. When you read those four words, it was a ball, it's in a context. If you're at a baseball park and the guy behind the plate who's in charge of the game sees a ball come across the plate, he might say, it was a ball. And the pitcher might say, it was a strike. No, it was a ball. That's a context. If you're out at a very fancy dinner that you wait once a year for, and there's going to be dancing, and you have dinner and dancing, and, and it was a ball. It was a ball. Princess Camilla would say that. I went to the ball. Or if you were uh, golfing on a golf course with me and went into the woods and saw something shiny, bright, white, you might say it was a ball, and it was yours, PD. It was a ball. The context is everything. So if you had no context for those four words today, you might choose any one of those. So you have to have context to understand it. Let's keep moving today. I've got lots to do. So here's a good riddle for you for the next point. What has four letters, occasionally has 12 letters, always has six letters, but never has five letters? Anybody have the answer for this wonderful riddle? What? What? They're, they're very good. There's a student in the room. Anybody have the answer yet? Well, maybe I can help you with our next point. Interpret the Bible literally. 
or normally, allowing for normal use of figurative language. You want to go back and read that again? What, W-H-A-T, has four letters. Occasionally, O-C-C-A-S-I-O-N-A-L-L-Y has 12 letters. Always has six letters, but never has five letters. This riddle is not a riddle, it's just simply a statement, and that's why the person in the back said, you are correct. That is not a riddle, it's a literary, literal statement. And this is what I love about this, is taking the Bible literally has to be an important step for us. We need to take the Bible literally, which allows for figurative language. There's a lot of figurative language in the Bible, Isaiah 55, 12. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills were burst into songs before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Now, literally, literally, I do not believe the mountains are going to burst out in song. And literally, I do not believe that the trees are going to clap their hands because that's an anthropomorphic ideology. Trees don't have hands, right? And so... Literal translation makes room for figurative language. I'm fine with this. This means something. And it was probably put in song. The hills are alive with the sound of music. Ah, right? And, and you don't really think the hills are alive, do you? Or, or make music? No. The Bible uses figurative language a lot. Literal translation, which we need to do, makes room for understanding figurative language. The Bible says that if you won't preach the gospel, the the rocks will cry out, right? Well, the rocks aren't really going to cry out, but what that means is creation is a testimony in itself. So there's meaning, but we need to be constantly working to find the the literal translation. In other words... Don't always try to find the meaning, the hidden meaning that there isn't a hidden meaning for. uh, People do that with the Bible a lot. I'll give you examples today as we go through that. Don't always try. I I, I even see books on the shelves that you can purchase about discovering the hidden secrets in the Bible. God meant this to be for you to read and understand. It's really not a hidden secret thing. You might think so as we get into Revelation, but really it's to be understood and take the simple literal translation 100% of the time, but, but understand figurative language. What's the difference between a literalist and a kleptomaniac? Anybody? Anybody? Nothing. A literalist takes things literally. A kleptomaniac takes things literally, right? Uh, do you understand what I'm getting at here? Again, I'm using language. I hope you see the, the depth of what I'm doing by using language to teach today, but it, it, it's for us to very seriously take the, 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 the goal of interpretation and, and interpreting the Bible literally. Not always trying to find a hidden meaning. Four, use the Bible to help interpret itself. Boy, I tell you, God is wonderful in wanting us to know what things mean. And quite often the Bible will tell us what it means on its own. A beautiful one comes up in our first lesson next week in Revelation 1. In Revela- I'm sorry, Revelation 1.20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstand is this, colon, here comes the answer. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Revelation 1.20 is God interpreting what was just said earlier. Earlier, John saw a vision 
of seven stars and seven lampstands. If you stop there, you might start thinking, seven stars? Uh, those, must be the, those must be the guys that were picked for the Baseball Hall of Fame this year. They're stars. You might start thinking, well, how do I interpret this? What's the meaning? How can I find it? Wait for it. <laughs> because later on in the passage, God says, oh, by the way, you want to know what the stars are? Here's what the stars are. It's the seven messengers of the church, which probably were the elders or the pastors of those churches. And the seven lampstands were the seven churches themselves. So week one, we're going to do Revelation 1. And then the next two weeks, we're going to do the seven churches of Revelation. And then we get into the rest of Revelation, which is the apocalyptic literature that deals with prophecy. And, and all of those use different types of interpretive skills. You'll find next week is a good starter. Revelation 1 is fairly easy, especially when God gives us Revelation 1.20. Here, stop working so hard. Here's the answer. It's a kind of warm-up for the rest of Revelation. And then you get into seven churches, and you start breaking that down. And then you get to the really deep, hard stuff. But use the Bible to help interpret itself. Number five, interpretation must be distinguished from application. Oh, let's, let's turn to John 12. Are you with me? Nobody said yes, PD. Oh, good, I thought you left me. Because I'm going to keep talking even if you're gone. In, in John 12, Mary anoints Jesus at Bethany. When you read this narrative, I would say, type of literature... It tells you what was going on. The first thing you always need to do is interpret it literally what's happening. And then there's room to make application from that. Be careful not to mix your application of a passage with the true interpretation of that passage. Many people will read this thing about Mary and the expensive perfume and make application of it. Saying, we shouldn't hold anything back. We should give it all away for the cause of Christ. He's worthy of worship. All of us would say, amen. But is that an interpretation of this passage? No, that's, that's one application of that passage. The interpretation is literally the narrative. This happened in history. A woman poured out expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus. Matthew chapter 7. Let's go back to that one. Matthew chapter 7. That's a lot of things happening there because we're still in the Sermon on the Mount there, I believe, right? Matthew 7. So Jesus is speaking. There's a lot of things going on. Probably one of my top three misinterpreted passages of Scripture in Matthew 7, verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. I know many people that read that passage and say, you can lose your salvation. It says branches were cut off and then burned into fire. We all know fire means hell. So this is a clear passage that eternal security is not true. However, as you'll learn in a little bit, the Bible interprets itself and the Bible never contradicts itself. I believe the Bible teaches eternal security very clearly throughout Scripture. The confusion is passages like this. So what tools do I use? Well, before you make an application, do the work of interpretation. Who's the author? Come on, people. It's in Matthew. Who's the author? Matthew. Who was Matthew writing to? Remember, you need to know who the audience is, what the context is of his writing, and, and what was going on in the past. Jesus is the one speaking in a message here. 
Why is Matthew including what Jesus spoke and what is he trying to give to his audience? I won't give you the answer right now because you'll find it as we continue to move on. Interpretation must be distinguished from application. This is why it's so dangerous to have a small group that simply comes together and just says, let's read this passage and let's all talk about what we think it means. And you go around the room and there's 10 different, well, I think what this means is um, I have a hard time at work with my boss right now and so I need to, no, 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 that's not interpreting scripture. That's skipping the hard work of interpretation, jumping right to application. Now, again, I'm not saying anything's wrong with application, but it's never to be done until the hard work of interpretation is done. You could take that verse that I just read to you about branches being cut out, thrown into fire and make a whole doctrine out of it. They have, but that's dangerous. And it's wrong. Six. Oh, wait, no, I have a good one. This is a good one about what is the point? Interpretation. Distinguish from application. Yeah, see, if you just go to application, your application could be very small compared to what the interpretation is. So I love this. Did you know that water is the most essential element of life? And that I would have said, yes, because without water, you can't make coffee. So as a person who's a coffee addict, self-confessed, and a, and a snooty connoisseur, uh, I love coffee, but you got to have water. I don't know about you guys, but our water is awful at our house. I've got a whole house filter in the basement. I've got a filter on the sink, too. And then I have one in my refrigerator as well. So if I use the water on my refrigerator, it goes through three filters. About every two weeks, my wife or my son will say, the water stinks. I have to change my whole house filter every two weeks. I change my under-sink filter every two weeks. That refrigerator one's expensive. I don't change that except for uh, when it goes off, the red light comes on. Why? Well, my wife and son like water. I do it because I like coffee. And I want good coffee. I don't want my coffee to smell like coffee half bad water. (laughs) So I change it. But the statement that Lucy made, did you know that water is the most essential element of life? Man, that that is a big statement. If my application of that is only for coffee, boy, the people in Alaska are going to be upset. (laughs) The people in Africa who don't have good drinking water are going to look at me and say, are you an idiot? You're talking about coffee taste and smell, and we're dying for a well with clean water in it. You see what I'm saying? Don't make application your first point of attack. Make interpretation the first point of attack. Number six, interpreter must be sensitive to distinctions between Israel and the church. Also, Old Covenant and New Covenant requirements One of the bigger mistakes people make when interpreting the Bible is they read it and they always think it's about them. It's all about me. It's all about now. It's all about how I look at it. When a lot of scripture was written specifically to an audience that you're not part of. A lot of scripture is written to a Jewish audience and many of you aren't Jews. I'm not a Jew. So therefore there are things that do not apply to me. Let's look at Genesis 12, 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. The land promises in the Old Testament are not mine to claim. They're just not. They were written to Abraham's descendants. And there's so much confusion today. And I don't, if you stand on a different line, again, we can be friends. But people, I always ask, what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with the Bible? And what do you do with Israel? To find out where we're at. What do you do with Israel? Today, the most popular view is Israel's gone. It doesn't exist. Matter of fact, the Old Testament tells us that God divorced them. (gasps) God's a divorcee. The Bible says so. God couldn't pastor your church. He would be exempt. 
maybe it has to do with interpretation and not an automatic jump to application. There's a lot of times when God would tell the people of Israel what he wanted to do, what he could do, what he should do, and then he always went back to grace. Israel is God's chosen people, and they have unfinished business, and there's things that are still going to happen that have nothing to do with me. And you're going to find out in Revelation, some of it talks about that. So where you stand on Israel today depends on how you interpret Scripture. Land promises are not mine. Leviticus 19, 19. Keep my decrees. Do not mate different kinds of animals. Do not plant your fields with two kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Y'all fail. Anybody got a polyester cotton mix on today? All going to hell. No. <laughs> I mean, you know that's ridiculous, right? You know, but the verse I read to you about Abraham's promise to his children, I mean, people live on that. And then in Leviticus 19, we read a passage where, well, that's not for me. Well, is it yours to pick and choose, or does the Bible clearly teach us what's for certain people or what's for us today? Obviously, Old Testament rules and law, you'll find out when we talk about forms of literature, a lot of the law does not apply to us today. Um, having to cover your head in worship, uh, some people still choose to do that, and you can make a case for doing that. If you want to do that, it shows deference to God. That's wonderful. But you're not commanded to any longer. We're not the Jewish people under law. You can wear a cotton polyester mix and you're okay with God. You can put two different kinds of seed in a field. I think that's what you did, Ed, at my house. Ed, Ed's wonderful. Ed, I love, comes over to my garden. And it, it was like, what, fall? I just love this. I didn't know you could do this. But we finished our garden and gave up on it and let it die. And Ed comes over and he planted stuff in the fall in my garden. And then he came over this week and he's like, you should have things. We're like, what? We go out there and there's chives, garlics popping up. You know, he mixed seeds in my garden. Ah! <laughs> Again, these were written specifically. And there's so many things to the Jewish people to have them be set apart. That's what God was doing. A set apart people with set apart rules. You and I are not subject to the rules that they had. Now, we'll get to principles in just a little bit. The interpreter must be sensitive to the type of literature, and this is the last point for this section. You've got to be sensitive to the type of literature being studied. Remember when I told you the Bible is literature? Well, then we need to be students of literature. Um, right now, I'm listening to The Old Man in the Sea by Hemingway. I, I do a lot of stuff on Audible uh, because I'm too lazy to read, but I love to listen. And uh, uh, I, I was, I've been watching the PBS, uh, have you watched the PBS thing right now on about Hemingway? they got a three-part series about Hemingway. I kind of... I kind of passionate about Hemingway because we go to Petoskey all the time, and Petoskey uh, has a place, uh, the Central Park Grill, right? And he used to sit at the bar all the time on the corner. To this day, they've got a, a skeleton sitting there uh, honoring him uh, where he sat. Hey, anybody been there? Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's a great place. Oh, people, come with me. Let's all go to Petoskey. I'll show you around. But Hemingway was from that area, and so it's kind of neat. He, 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 what's that little bridge uh, that you can go, or no, the little ferry? what's up north there by Harbor Springs, Petoskey area? Well, I don't know what the name is. But we, we just were on it and found out that as a child, Hemingway was in the house that's right off the ferry. That's the house he grew up in, little boy. Wow. So I'm studying Hemingway, and I want to I start. Boy, I tell you what, though. If you watch what people do for interpreting Hemingway, how many different interpretations are there? How many of you read The Old Man in the Sea? 
Okay, students, you're going to have to in school, so get ready. Uh, uh, old man in the sea. Was Hemingway talking about himself? Is he the old man in the sea? Or, or is he the catch? Is he the catch that he tied to the boat that got eaten by sharks? Or, or, or is he the shark? See, there, you can make a million different interpretations of that. And what's the truth? I don't know. Hemingway was a drunk. Who knows what he was thinking? I don't know if we'll ever know. He was kind of a crazy man, wasn't he? And so we're not talking about biblical literature there, but boy, what people do, the lengths they go. So interpreter must be centered to the type of literature. Let's walk through the types of literature being studied. Number one, narrative literature. Most of the Old Testament, some of the New Testament is narrative. It's stories being told. The passage needs to be interpreted in its historical context. Then applications can be drawn from characters and events. The one verse in Judges 3.31 after Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. That's one verse about that guy. That's all we got. So what do you want to do with that verse? We all should be slaughtering people with big sticks. Amen? Application, let's pray. Amen. No, 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 no. Ho, ho, ho. Is this prescriptive or is it just descriptive? I'm here to tell you, I believe that this is simply narrative. It's simply telling you this guy did this. What, what kind of application should we take from this? If you think it's always about you, you might be thinking about weapons and different things. Honestly, I, I simply think what God was saying in one passage about one guy is he didn't need a mighty army. He trusted in the Lord. And so with a hefty stick, an ox goad was a stick that you'd just goad oxes with push him out of the way right he, he he was able to defeat 600 philistines it's not by might or by power but by the lord right and so i interpret scripture as scripture to say the application of this isn't that we should be going and finding philistines and hanging on the head with a stick that's not the application but the application can be drawn with god mighty things can happen one verse but it's that's the application. What's the interpretation? The interpretation is, this is history being told to you. There was a guy, and he did this. That's it. <laughs> Next one, type of literature, law. We already talked about this a little bit. Christians are not under law as a legal system. You can look up Romans six fourteen on your own. But we are to fulfill the principles that stand behind the law of a loving God, of loving God and loving one's neighbor. We all agree that that's true, right? Love God. Love people, although that was a, a, an Old Testament statement given to the Israel people. But is the principle still true? Yes. You want to hit the center of the mark? Love God with everything you've got and love people with everything you've got. So therefore, those law that were given to the Israel people, they might not be applicable to you, but the principle might be true. Again, I've shared with you, out of the Ten Commandments, nine of them were repeated in the, in the New Testament for all of us. Nine of them. The one that was not mentioned again was the Sabbath. We're not, never told as us, as people today, to, to obey the Sabbath law. Number one, we couldn't. It's awful. The Sabbath law was awful. Y'all broke it already coming here today. You went too far. You're only allowed to travel so far on Sunday. Who, who all is going to go out to eat after this? Not only are you in trouble, but you're sending the people that are serving you to hell. Yeah, we don't follow the law. But let me ask you this. Even though that wasn't repeated in the New Testament, is there a principle there? Say, yes, PD. Yes. There is a principle of Sabbath that we need to embrace. 
Just because it wasn't given to us directly doesn't mean it doesn't exist for us today. God constantly showed us a Sabbath principle. God rested on the seventh day. Sabbath principle. Jesus had to get alone and pray at times away from the crowds. Sabbath principle. We should understand that our God gave his people a rule, a hard, fast rule to follow in the Old Testament, but there's a principle for us today. I'm thankful for that because you know what? My Sabbath is never going to be on Sunday. It's not. If it was a hard, fast law, then I'm in trouble. I'm working today twice, right? But there's a principle. Let me, let me tell y'all. Tomorrow I'm going golfing. Y'all go back to work. I'm going on Sabbath. I'm heading north tonight to my father-in-law's house. He's going to take me out for barbecue. And, and then in the morning we're going to get up and we're going to go golfing. And it's going to be restful. Even though I'm going to yell at the ball. I'm, trust me. It's going to be restful. Principle of Sabbath. We need it. We need it. Eyeballs here. I think I'm going to have to do damage control on this one more than anything I've ever said. Remember when I preached to you about the tithe? Remember how I taught you that the tithe was an Old Testament law? And a lot of you said, woohoo! <laughs> I'm not going to give anymore. N- no. Again, I, you, might have, you might have missed what I followed up with. What I taught that day was a tenth, a tithe, is a law that was given, but there is a principle of a tenth throughout Scripture. And what I taught you that day was we are under a harder set of standards today than the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law is simple. Tenth. Give a tenth. That's all you got to do. You're done. Clean and good. Now the principle for us today is generosity. The principle is 10%. Y'all, y'all, if you aren't giving 10%, I think you're falling well short. Because there's a principle. I think we ought to be going above 10%. And y'all are a very given church. The way you give to the backpack blessings, Shrek and, and the Stand Strength team. You give. You give abundantly. But again, when we talk about scripture, I'm not going to stand up and tell you God demands a tenth. I don't believe that that's necessarily true when I interpret scripture. But I believe there's a principle of generosity and giving. And if God said a tenth was kind of a benchmark for him, I don't think we ought to be going below it. I think he tells us to give generously. I don't know if y'all with me. Some of y'all left me on that one. All right. Types of literature. Wisdom literature. um, General truth based on observation, but not absolute truth of promises. Pastor Shane, a couple of weeks ago, did Proverbs. and He taught this very thing. Uh, Proverbs 15.1 on the screen. A gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. This is a general truth that normally you could say this is true. Is it always true? No, because that woman at Sam's last night drove me nuts. Josh ran out of contacts. So I grabbed the box, ripped off the script, and went into Sam's Club. And I'm like, I'm going to get this. I got to get contact. I said, I, I need contacts. My son ran out of contacts. Uh, and uh, I need. She, no. I was like, oh. I did some literal interpretation on that one, and I realized she was saying, no. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean by no? He can't have contacts. He has to have an annual exam. I was like, man, well, I'm so, I, I, we'll do that. Let's get, a, let's get an appointment before I leave today, but I need a box. Can I buy a box of contacts? No. I've already told you. He can't have contacts until he has an exam. I said, man, he's a student in school, and he drives a car. I need a set of contacts. Can I have a couple of contacts? No. I already told you. 
He's got to have an appointment. Well, this is where I wanted to go to the second part of the verse. But I didn't. I even wrote my, my wife and son. I said, I tried charm and it didn't work. It didn't. It doesn't always work. But in general, a gentle answer is the way you want to go. Because a, a harsh word or word spoken in anger, that's going to get a response you can kind of count on to, right? And so, is it a promise? No. If you, if you ran into the lady at Sam's Club and, and you read this verse, you'd say, God lied. No, he didn't, because this is not a promise. This is what normally happens in normal situations. This is what works. This is a, it's wisdom. Proverbs 22.6 is the most famous one. Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they're old, they will not turn from it. This is a general principle. Yes, you want to raise your children in the admonition of the Lord. We, we did a dedication of little Clara last week. Is Clara here? No. Oh. Cora, thank you. Cora, little Cora. And I've said to all of us, and the mom and dad, let's give her every opportunity to know Jesus and help her grow in Jesus. That's our goal. The, that's the best way to go about it. Is that a guarantee that she'll never rebel? No. How many of you know good parents that did a good job but had a kid run away? I mean, not, not run away, but like, yeah, 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 you're doing what I should do, right? Rusty didn't just raise his hand. He went, me. <laughs> You know, I got two parents watching right now from Chicago. They did, a, they did the right thing. But I was a rebel and chose bad paths. I came back, but not all people do. Some run and don't return. And it breaks parents' hearts. And they read this passage over and over again saying, God lied. No, he didn't. This is wisdom literature. This is telling you the best way to choose to live and what the normal results could be, should be. But it isn't a guarantee. Let's keep moving. Uh, types of literature, poetry, often has a greater use of figurative language than narrative or law. I don't know what translation you use of scripture, but I, I encourage you to get one that when it gets to poetry, it, it breaks it down by line. Uh, some beautiful things. Hebrew poetry is really interesting. What, Psalm 119, it starts with the first letter of the alphabet, and it goes through the entire Hebrew alphabet. Psalm 119 is laid out alphabetically. Did you know that? In Hebrew poetry, that's how it's laid out, but when you translate it to English, you're going to lose that. But get a Bible that gets paragraph breaks and, and shows you what poetry is by line. It prints it in line. It helps you understand things like poetry. Types of literature, we're getting the closer to Revelation, I promise. Gospel literature, each author had a specific audience. Matthew, a Jewish audience. Mark, a Roman audience. Luke, a Greek audience. John had a universal audience, or it was written to all. Uh, t- us today let's go back to matthew 7 verse 19 the branches are cut off burned in a fire was matthew telling us as christians today shape up or ship out eternal security does not exist if you mess up you will lose your salvation was that what matthew was teaching it's class who's matthew's audience who do the jewish people think they are because of their heritage they think they are the vine and the branches. That's why we see quite often in Scripture Jesus saying, you're not the vine. I am the vine. You are the branches. They use a tree as their imagery on their flag of the Jewish people to this day. They think that they are the divine. Yes, they are God's people. But then God made it clear you must have faith. So for those people who think they're the, in the tree, if they don't have faith... 
they need to know that they're not in. You're cut off and burned up. So looking back at Matthew 7, 19, does this mean that you can lose your salvation today as a believer? No, it's not a passage about that at all. It's to the Jewish people warning them, just because you by birthright are a Jew doesn't mean you're in. So you have to do the hard work of interpretation. So we look at who the audience was to try to understand what was the author telling us. Again, original intent. Types of literature, we'll move on to parables. They're forms of figurative speech, stories used to illustrate truth. You often hear about parables. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Be careful, though. Do not try to interpret everything in a parable and make it something. So some principles of parables. Determine the context that prompted it. Jesus was speaking in uh, 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 mm, 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 the lost son, John. Am I in John? Isn't it John? Somebody help me. Luke, no? We'll figure it out later. Jesus told us a parable, a story, an earthly story about a, uh, that has a heavenly meaning about a lost son. People do all sorts of weird things with that parable. Where did the parable come from? Jesus was speaking it, and Jesus was responding to something that had just happened. What had just happened in the story. So understand the story's natural meaning. So in the context, when Jesus is telling that, you've got to ask yourself, why is Jesus telling us a story about a lost son? What just happened that prompted him telling the story? Because that will get you to the meaning of the story. Ascertain the main point or truth and focus on this. Focus on the main point. Don't focus on all the, the, the stuff on the side. Let's give an example. Matthew 13. We're going to put it on the screen. While they're doing this... Um, I want to go to that Jesus story about the lost son. What is the context of Jesus telling that story? The disciples were eating with sinners, lost people, and it made the religious people mad. The religious people said in their minds, and they were even saying it out loud, how can this man eat with sinners? And in response to that thought, Jesus tells Three stories, not just one of the lost son. That's the denouement. That's the concluding story. But he tells three stories. He tells a story about lost sheep. If, if, if a guy has a hundred sheep and loses one, won't he go find that one? He tells a story about a woman who had ten coins and searches the house to find the coin. And then he tells the story about the lost son. Three stories Go to the context. Go to the original intent. Jesus is answering their question, why are you eating with sinners? The answer is, lost people matter to God. Lost people matter to God. Hundred sheep, lose one, I'll go hunting for it. Lost people matter to God. Ten coins, I lose one, I'll hunt for that coin. Lost people matter to God. One son out of two, I will go after the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Now, when people preach those passages, sometimes they'll say the point of the lost son is sin is terrible and you will get addicted because the lost son went out and did bad things. That was not the interpretation of that passage. You can make an application that if you get into sin, you're going to end up wallowing in the mud. That's an application, but that's not the interpretation of the passage. When you preach or read that passage, lost people matter to God. That's the interpretation. 
Many applications could come from it. And therefore, we got this passage, another example. Matthew 13, 31. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants. It becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch on its branches. When you read this parable, you need to understand that not everything written there has a hidden meaning. People have tried to determine what the birds are that came and perched in the branches. I think it's just descriptive. It's a big tree, all. I think that's it. Uh, but people try to add so much stuff. They'll read this passage and go, well, that bird. See, that bird has to do with my son. Honestly, it doesn't. Sorry. It's just it's trying to explain that that was a really itty-bitty seed. Now it's a big tree, so big that birds can come live in it. That's it. <laughs> so uh, when we talk about Bible, you need to know what kind of literature you're interpreting and then be careful. Focus on the main thing and make that the main thing. Well, getting down toward the end, we have getting the New Testament Acts. Acts is the theologized history of the early church. It tells what the church was doing from the human side and what God was doing from the divine side. Some events are descriptive of what happened, not proscriptive expectations. A lot of mistakes come from the book of Acts because people look at that and say, Okay, this is what the Bible tells us we should do. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, okay? Are we doing that? No, we're not doing that. Are we failing? No. That is, it's historical information. This is what the first church did. Trust me, when we start breaking it down, there was things happening that we just don't do today, and I'm thankful. I am not going to handle poisonous snakes on stage, folks. I'm not going to do it. not going to do it. Because I don't think that the Bible was proscriptive there, telling you what to do. It was just telling you this is what had been done. This is what happened. A lot of things happened with the, the sign gifts, speaking in tongues, and, and miracles that, that took place. In, it was a change of dispensations. Well, I won't get into that whole thing. But at the beginning of a dispensation like the church, a lot of things were happening. Does that mean it has to be happening all the time at that length? No. No. The Bible clearly states that tongues will cease. Was it used? It was a gift, yes. Is, is it to be used today? I don't think it's prescriptive that it's to be used in the church today. We don't speak in tongues here at Oakwood from the stage. I have friends that come to Oakwood that do speak in tongues in their prayer closet. I'm not telling you you can't. But I'm telling you, for when I've looked at it, the book of Acts, it was descriptive of historical facts, not prescriptive of what you should be doing today. Let's move on. Acts, and then there's the epistles. This is the one that's directly, when you read the epistles, it's like a, a, because it makes sense to us, and it's for us, right? It's written for believers. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. I don't have time to read that whole one, so we'll leave it out. But it, it's a wonderful passage. Read it today and say, yes, thank you, God, that I have salvation. It was written in 1 Corinthians that if Jesus died on the cross and if he rose again and if I put my faith in him, have forgiveness of sin, I will be resurrected from the dead. Amen. That's for me and for you today. The epistles were written directly to apply to us. And then as I wrap up, finally, everybody say finally. Hey, hermeneutics is a whole two-semester class. I did it in one Sunday. Whew. Revelation is apocalyptic literature. It's the most difficult due to the use of symbolic language so here's help as we close today how are we going to approach revelation let me tell you as your pastor we're going to approach it literally understanding figurative language and symbolic language but let me break it down for you to make it simpler remember who is being revealed 
This is the, the, the absolute key to the book of Revelation. This is not the revelation of the Antichrist. Everybody wants to read Revelation and tell you that obviously, um, you know, Obama was the Antichrist. Or obviously, Hitler was the Antichrist. This is, the book of Revelation is not a revelation of the Antichrist. It is very clearly the revelation of Jesus Christ. Who is it for? It's for us, the church, for believers today. That's who it was written for. And then, remember this, Scripture interprets Scripture. Let's allow, as we study, to find out if God tells us what those symbols are. We have to use the Old Testament because in the Revelation, the author didn't help us a lot because he just starts quoting things from the Old Testament without telling us he's doing that. So we find, where is that at? What does it mean? The book of Daniel. If you want to read Revelations this week, you ought to start and read Daniel 7 through 9 because that's what we're going to be looking at in Revelation, starting in chapter 4 on. Scripture interprets Scripture. Put together what is heard and what is seen. When you read the book of Revelation, John says, I heard a voice saying this. And then he said, I turned around and I saw. Quite often, he heard the truth and then he saw it. Or he saw some symbol and then he heard the teaching about it. So we got to pay attention when he says what he hears and what he sees. And finally, notice the movement from earth to heaven. Here's my encouragement for you if you start reading Revelation. Don't get all scared and freaked out by it. Because what John does is he gives us what's happening on earth during the last times. A description. And then he moves up to heaven and he tells us what's happening up in heaven during the last times. Everything he talks about happening in heaven is peace and wonderful and no more pain and no more sorrow. Everything happened here, fire and all sorts of bad stuff. Well, here's the good news, or at least where I come from. I'm not going to experience any of that stuff happening on earth, so it doesn't scare me one bit. I'm going to be gone. I'm going to be up here. So when you read Revelation, if you want to agree with me, and you see all those happy parts, that's where you'll be. If you see all the things that are happening here in prophecy, that's what's happening here on earth. And I believe that as believers, we're not going to experience God's wrath. He promised us we are not people of the wrath. We are no longer under condemnation, but we will be saved. So that's where we're going. Oh, I got to do this again in an hour. Let's pray. Come on up and let's close out in prayer. Let me pray for you. Let's pray. And then I encourage you as we get 13 weeks of looking into Revelation. It's going to be fun. It's going to be hard work, but it's going to be fun. Let me pray a blessing and then our band will play for us as we leave. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. It's a wonderful thing that you've given us, but we do need to be students. And so today, if anything, I pray that everyone has realized, whoa, I need to take seriously reading Scripture and understanding what its meaning is. And then God, help us apply it to our lives and do it appropriately. I pray all these things in Jesus' name.